Welcome to the Indy Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Each week, we'll discuss matters of importance that we covered and look ahead to what's coming in the Nevada Independent. We are a nonprofit news site that can be found at thenevadaindependent.com. I'm joined tonight up in the state capitol by our trio of Carson City reporters, Riley Snyder, Michelle Rendells, and Megan Messerly. Hi, team. Hey, John. Hey, John. Hi, John. Look at how they love their editor. <laughs> this, this was another big deadline week in Carson City, guys. Bills had to be out of the house of origin by Tuesday, or they died, or at least they're putting some strange form of legislative suspended animation. We'll talk about that in a minute. We'll also talk about some of the bills specifically uh, that are interesting that lived and died. There was also a meeting this week of a large, a very large committee on energy. It met uh, this week in the legislative building. We'll talk about that. Uh, these energy issues are really complex, so we're going to try to help uh, everybody understand them, and you should help the editor uh, understand them, uh, Riley and Michelle, and uh, he would really appreciate that. We're also going to tell you about some developments in races for 2018. Yes, it's April of 2017, and stuff is already happening. We're going to also give you a few hints about some stuff that's going to be in the Nevada Independent very soon. All right, team, let's talk about this bill deadline. It's the last one for a while. The bills that were in the Assembly had to be out of the Assembly. Bills that were in the Senate had to be out of the Senate. Uh, Riley, let me start with you. This is really both of these deadlines, the one last week to get out of committee and the one this week to get out of houses of origin, they were really not that exciting, right? Well, you could say that. Uh, we were there until 10 o'clock, so it was a little exciting for us. But it is a lot of hurry up and wait. It's a lot of bills that have been heard already. Uh, one interesting thing that I read today was that several hundred bills have actually been exempted or have been given uh, fiscal notes, which means they kind of can stick around till the end of session because they have an effect on the state budget. So they're not really dead. They're not really dead. Well, nothing right. ever is really dead in right. the legislative building. Uh, but really, it wasn't as you know exciting as we thought you know the stuff we thought would get party line votes got party line votes shockingly republicans didn't want to expand collective bargaining to state employees stuff like that um so it pretty much went as expected uh, the senate finished up at 5 p.m on tuesday the assembly finished closer to about 10 10 30 so it was a long day but it wasn't uh too out of the ordinary it wasn't a lot of drama and one thing uh that is interesting megan and i know we tracked this is that we tend to cover the contention right but overwhelming number of these votes are unanimous, right? That's true. Yeah, there are a lot of unanimous votes. We went through and counted and, you know, it only ends up being a fraction at the end. I don't remember what the exact percentage was, but, you know, the vast majority, you know, more than 50% are are unanimous. And, and I think we saw a lot of that last week. And as we got into deadline on Monday and Tuesday, you know, we saw more party line votes come up. But it's still at the end of the day, you know, a lot of these things are you know, there are a lot of just sort of important policy things that are sort of nuanced and technical, and they're, they're not really partisan issues. So there is bipartisan support for them. You know, it's interesting, too, because there has, we've talked about, you know, the, the tensions between some of the Republicans, especially in the Senate, uh, and, and the Democrats, Michael Roberson and, and, and Senator Ford. So let, let's talk a little bit, uh, uh, Michelle, I'll let you jump in here. Uh, what are some of the more significant bills uh, that, that uh, uh, some legislators would have liked to have seen live, but now look like they died? Well, there were only about 16 measures that actually died by deadline. And like Riley said, a lot of them um, kind of went into, um, they got a fisc what's called a fiscal note on them. Uh, so they're in a, in a finance committee and they'll probably die there because there's just too many bills there. Um, they're not going to get heard. They're going to mess up the budget. Um, 
So among the 16 bills that we saw die, um, I was mainly focused on the assembly. Uh, one of them that you saw die was this thing that was going to do a, sal a salary study for public uh, officials. Um, talked to Paul Anderson, uh, assembly minority leader. He said he would have liked to see that live. That was going to go to the voters. It had been approved in 2015. It needed to just one more vote. And then it would have gone to the voters. There would have been this commission that just does this thorough analysis of um, of salaries. So yeah. tell, tell people more about that. Uh, salaries of just legislators, of all elected officials, of, of, of all appointed officials, what would it have done? It was going to do the governor, the lieutenant governor, secretary of state, legislators, judges, public administrators, a, a really wide group of people would have set those salaries um, and try to compare them with salaries in the public sector and the private sector, um, but just kind of died on deadline day. Um, there were also a couple other bills that were Republican bills that fell by the wayside. Uh, Assemblyman John Hambrick had a bill that would have uh, shut down businesses that are hotbeds for prostitution. That died. Um, Assemblyman Jim Marchant had a bill that would have, you know, studied a high-speed train between Las Vegas and Reno. That died. Uh, so just just a couple of them. But so Nevada showed its commitment to keeping uh, uh, motels as hotbeds of prostitution. Uh, we're, we're we're still going to do that. Is that what that was all about? Apparently so. <laughs> <laughs> that's what the state was founded on, John. That's, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, so let, let's talk. Uh, uh, anybody jump in here? Uh, uh, what 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 bills are are still alive that we need to watch? Not necessarily uh, um, uh, unanimous votes or even party line votes, which we tracked as well. What bills are alive that, that we think are going to be part of? Uh, as we get only five weeks left after, after this week, what bills are going to be part of the so-called end game and negotiations? Because the Democrats can pass anything they want, but the key is what is the governor going to sign? So what bills do we think that uh, uh, survived are going to be part of that? Well, there's a gigantic like storm of different policy things that are all sort of turning into the end game. So there's all this renewable energy stuff. There's one that raises the amount of uh, energy that has to be produced by renewable sources in the state to 50% by 2030. That one's out there. There's the governor's educational savings account bill. It's really his and a lot of Republicans like pet project of the entire Senate Republican caucus said they wouldn't vote for a budget that doesn't include funding for it uh, before the session started. Didn't I see a chart on that, Megan, somewhere about th th those those votes? I think I did. We did that one early on. Yeah. Chart master All Megan the charts. Always charts. The charts. <laughs> Come to the Nevada Independent for the articles. Stay for the charts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that one's still alive. It was given an exemption. Um, there's all the marijuana tax bills. There's the pharma bill that Megan knows way more about than anybody else. Um, there's just a ton of bills that like have either gotten exemptions or like moved through, but we're still expecting a lot of progress over the last or the next five weeks in terms of like changes to the amendment language, um, changes to how it's going to kind of figure itself out. A lot of these decisions, as you know, John, are made in the last <laughs> 72 to 48 hours. So there's a lot of big policy things we've been covering throughout the session that didn't make it through on Tuesday, but are still like hanging out there in the background. I guess what I'm wondering, and, and, and anyone again can jump in if you if you want to jump in, Megan, that's fine too. Some of these party line votes that, that, that we track, those, those are the contentious bills. Uh, should we assume that uh, the, the, that those are not going to be ones that the governor will not sign? Are they going to try to amend those bills? Is it going to be a combination of both? What do we think? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the question, right? Is we did see a lot of these party line votes, and the question is, you know. 
know, is there something that can happen on the other side to make this more palatable? You know, does the governor need at least one or two or three or four, you know, Republicans to sign on? What is there a magic number? Um, and I think a lot of that remains to be seen. Um, I was going to say one of the things that jumped out to me is sort of I've been following a lot of the different health care bills and there are these bills trying to codify certain portions of the Affordable Care Act. Um, into state law. And so it was really interesting. We saw um, one bill on the assembly side codifying some different parts of the, the ACA about pre-existing conditions and allowing children to stay on their parents' insurance till age 26 and whatnot. Um, and that passed on a, on a straight party line vote in the assembly. Um, but then interestingly, we had another assembly bill uh, which dealt with contraception and codifying the requirement for free contraception that's in the Affordable Care Act, putting that into state law. Um, it even expanded upon it. Um, right now, they only have to distribute three months at once, and they there was a provision in here that makes it so 12 months. So you can go to the pharmacy, and they have to give you a 12-month supply um, all at once. And that bill actually passed on a 40 to 2 uh, vote in the assembly. So we actually saw a lot of Republicans, most Republicans, sign on to that. So we see this sort of interesting split with what you know, Republicans can live with and what they can. And those two just sort of stuck out to me because they are dealing with the Affordable Care Act. Democrats do want to take some sort of action to codify portions of that into state law in case it is repealed. Yeah, there's still talk in Washington that the Republicans may get to a deal. If it's not tomorrow, then maybe it's never, as one of the uh, congressmen said today. But this is interesting, too, because people forget that while Sandoval, the governor, has said he, he, he was opposed to the Affordable Care Act, he did expand Medicaid, he did set up the exchange uh, here. So it's possible that, that the governor might be willing to sign some of this stuff, don't you guys think? It's possible. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we've seen, you know, the governor and, and our Republican members of our congressional delegation concerned about is the Medicaid expansion. And, you know, these bills don't necessarily deal with that because it's a federal issue. But that is the question is Nevada's built so much of its budget around Medicaid and around, you know, sort of the status quo that what happens if you start changing that. Um, on a lot of this, too, a lot of the arguments have been, well, if this is already in the Affordable Care Act, we're not changing anything for anyone. We're just, you know, putting it into state law so that if the ACA goes away, um, we still can have the status quo. But obviously a lot of people don't like the Affordable Care Act, so. You know, it's interesting, O'Reilly, uh, because you and uh, Megan did a story that ran uh, a few days ago uh, in our Follow the Money series, which I hope uh, people will take a look at on the Nevada Independent site, that talked about health care money. And there was a, there was a lot given uh, last cycle, almost a million, uh, I think it was like $915,000, something like that. Uh, and so these issues that Megan just referred to, there's going to be a lot of lobbying going on uh, in the last five weeks on those uh, that money would indicate, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, for one, I just have to mention, you know, the socialists in Nevada appear to love the Follow the Money series. So be remiss if I didn't give them a shout out on the podcast. Uh, uh, we know how the socialists love the Nevada Independent and especially the editor. Yeah, of the <laughs> extreme centrist. <laughs> That's right. I'm an extreme centrist, indeed. No, but uh, we've been doing the Follow the Money series uh, every week at the legislative session. And especially for healthcare, it was just kind of striking how much money, you know, different hospitals, different insurance companies, the Medicaid providers that the state has, I think we have a total of three, uh, and there's only one that serves like a lot of rural areas, but they were also big donors. So a lot of the, um, what people deal with, like in terms of healthcare, they're, uh, they are big donors to lawmakers and they have a lot of lobbyists at the legislature and we'll continue to track that. 
I think even going through that and, you know, even in my own reporting and, and, and such, you know, you realize how, how complicated this healthcare web is and going through and looking up some of these companies, right. And trying to figure out what they're doing. There's healthcare consulting companies and management companies and all these middlemen. And so it's sort of interesting to see, you know, what groups are giving and sort of how that factors into all this legislation. And it's really tough to track all that money too. And we, it's as good as you guys are, you probably miss something because of how they can hide stuff through LLCs and how opaque some of this uh, stuff is. Let's, speaking of complex issues, uh, and you can jump in on this, Michelle, since you're one of our experts on this, uh, energy, as, as uh, we've already alluded to, is going to be a big deal. Um, uh, and we'll talk about this meeting in a minute. But um, some pretty important energy bills are still uh, out there. And I think this is an important issue for a lot of Democrats. And I think it's an important issue for the governor in the sense that he wants this off the table forever, right? He wants it, like, especially the net metering issue, but even the issue of renewable portfolio standards and renewable. Sandoval wants to be known as a progressive in that sense, too. So what's still out there on energy that they have to resolve? The biggest two bills are, you know, the one... The net metering bill, it's called AB 270. It aims to kind of fix what happened in mm. in 2015, which a lot of people were upset about. Um, Let's it, explain what net metering is, because most people have no idea what net metering is. Uh, and, and it's still a very, very difficult concept, right? So net metering is when you have a rooftop solar array. Your system div- you know, produces excess energy. You get to sell that back to the grid. Um, and so it usually is, is lowering your electricity bill and people get it as a, you know, an investment, um, that kind of pays for itself over the years. And you also feel good about, uh, how you're helping the environment. Uh, so a lot of people were installing these on their roofs, um, especially when it was just real cost effective. The range, the, you know, pay structure was really effective, um, cost effective, and in 2015, after, after that legislative session, after some decisions by regulators, the pricing structure changed. It became less cost-effective to have one of these solar arrays. Um, that kind of bungled the whole uh, rooftop solar industry that was just booming um, under the old structure. So it's a real popular issue at the doors for these uh, legislators. People want to, quote unquote, bring back solar. It's still there. It's just the pricing is different. Not not very favorable at this point. Um, What's the other bill? The other one is the renewable portfolio standard, which would require that utilities in the state obtain a certain amount mm-hmm. of their overall electricity um, from renewable sources. And right now, Nevada's... Uh, 20, 25% uh, renewable resources. And the goal through this bill would be to have these utility companies get 80% of their energy through renewable sources. Um, People, you know, resisted that. Some of these big gaming companies came and said, no, that's just too much too fast. Um, So anyways, these bills are, are both very complicated, both in terms of the policy and the players that are involved. Um, so they were kind of at a bit of an impasse, you know, deadline came and went, these guys are, are exempted from the deadline. They need more time to figure this out. Um, we're Which is probably a good thing since it's so complicated, yeah, right? We're hearing that there's a little, um, more progress on that. There's, there's signs that they're going to come to some sort of a, an agreement on this renewable portfolio standard. 
Um, but you kind of got to get through the political obstacles first. I, I want to talk about that energy uh, committee, and I think uh, both you and uh, Riley sat through that, Michelle. But let me ask you real quickly, Megan, uh, so you can jump in here. We, I, I'm pretty sure we did a follow the money story on energy, and, and, and what, what, what you guys found was what Envy Energy is just dominates that. Is that right? Yeah, I want to say that Envy Energy had a lot, but what sort of we found is it's sort of interesting because Envy Energy is a big player, but, you know, we also saw solar industries give, giving more and more, and so it's sort of a changing of the, the sort of energy dynamics and the, the traditional, you know, donors in the state. You expect Envy Energy to give money, um, but sort of everyone else is ramped up spending, too. But Envy Energy was still number one yeah. on that list. I yeah. believe Southwest Gas was number two. Right, yeah. Southwest Gas, yeah. yeah. So the public utilities, uh, yep. they, they, they give a lot of money uh, to legislators. It's nice to have monopolies, but... Mm -hmm. Uh, that may not be lasting uh, that much longer. Uh, you're listening to Indie Matters. It's the podcast of the Nevada Independent. Please go check out our site at the thenevadaindependent.com. Uh, you can see all these follow the money stories and much more. All right, Riley, uh, Lieutenant Governor doesn't have much to do. Uh, these days, but he actually, uh, or any day, and so, but but uh, this week he chaired a very important commission that that, that the governor uh, put him in charge of, uh, I, I believe. Talk about uh, what this panel is, and uh, for a bonus on your paycheck, name every member of that commission. Can I'm you? not going to get that bonus. <laughs> I can tell you that right now. Tell tell me tell people why you will not get that bonus. Okay, so. <laughs> Basically, in 2016, if you went and voted, you probably voted yes on something called Question 3. It has to do with energy dere deregulation. It was called the Energy Choice Initiative. It was hugely popular. I think it was the most popular ballot initiative in state history. It passed like 75 to 25, 80 to 20. So hugely popular. What it does is that it gets rid of Envy Energy's monopoly on uh, energy uh, choice, right? So... Other people can come into the market. Other can, there can yeah, be yeah. actual competition in the market. You can buy your energy from other companies other than Envy Energy. Right. So this is a huge change. Only 15 other states have done this. It usually happened like in the mid-90s to early 2000s. No one really on the West Coast has done this ever. So there's like a lot of really unanswered questions that weren't really answered before it passed. Thankfully, Nevada's constitution, to change it, you have to pass it on the ballot twice. So it'll be up again in 2018. People are kind of expecting it to pass again, just because it was so popular in 2016. So that's a long-winded like beginning of why this commission was put in place. The governor realizing that this is a huge change, we need to figure out a way to structure this market in a way that people's power bills aren't going to skyrocket with all these uh, you know, companies coming in and they're not being like the right regulatory oversight, put together this commission chaired by the lieutenant governor, Mark Hutchison, and then I believe it's 25 members in total. And it's just, it's everyone, any interesting thing of in the state, it's the wind, it's the sands, it's Envy Energy, it's, uh, you know, the Urban Chamber. There's like four different lawmakers. There's a few elected officials on it as well, right? Yeah. So there's Chris Brooks, who's a state assemblyman who's been big in the renewable world. Um, there's two Republicans, two Democrats. There's like a Paiute tribe. There's the AARP. There, it's a huge group of people that they brought together. And they've been all over the issue. Like there's people on this commission who funded and helped pass the energy choice initiative. There's people who totally oppose it. I think it's the worst idea ever. So it's like this gigantic group, kind of explosive of people who are coming together with all these different ideas about how energy policy should be formed. And that's, we got the first taste of that on Wednesday, and it was surprisingly not as contentious as I think we, we thought it would be. Does this commission have any power at all to do anything, or can they just recommend? I think people wonder if they mean they're meeting in the middle of a legislative session with all these people who actually do have power to do something. Can they do anything? Ultimately, what they're going to do is come up with, you know, a, a report. They want to inform the voters on whether it's not exactly a 
taking a side on whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. But it is telling people, how much is this going to cost? Is this going to raise rates? Uh, how is this going to happen? Um, so they're kind of in the background. They're, they're going to be working on this, um, this massive investigative report um, about this. But really, it's the legislature that is charged with opening the electricity market. So ultimately, you know, they have some legislators in the group. They're getting buy-in from them, hoping that they can continue this work in future legislative sessions because they really are the ones with the real power. But of course, you know, we're in a part-time legislature. Um, not everyone has the time to uh, really, really dig into this and figure out how much it's going to cost. So this commission is is doing a lot of the heavy lifting. And this first meeting, which I, I gather was a pretty long meeting, right? It, it started in the morning, went into the late afternoon. Uh, I, I think there was just a bunch of presentations at this first meeting uh, from from like the utility and from some of the some of the, the choice the the energy choice people. Is that what that wasn't? Yeah, we heard from the author of the ballot measure and and the folks that are supporting the energy choice initiative, talking about the intent. Um, what they see from experience in other states on how this would work and what's possible and what's not possible. We also heard from California, which did deregulate to an extent, had a pretty bad, notorious experience with that, if you remember the rolling brownouts. Um, and th they spoke about how they operate their market. You heard from, uh, you heard about the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, aka FERC, and they would be in charge of some stuff if if we went into an open I mean, market. Is, I mean, even as I listen to this, and you got, uh, there was a fantastic explainer on our site by uh, Riley and Michelle, if you really want to learn uh, all about this, and you made it very simple for people, but it is incredibly complex, even as just Michelle just uh, laid that out there. And you, oh, the overlay of it is what you referred to, Riley, which is that this has to pass again. This energy choice has to pass again. It's likely to pass again. And so whatever policy this commission recommends and what the legislature, as we've talked about, uh, is going to pass this time has to jibe if it's going to make sense with a newly deregulated market. Are there concerns about that? Yeah, so there's a ton of concerns, right? We talked about some of the major renewable energy bills that are out there raising the renewable portfolio standard from, I believe it's 25% by 2025 to a goal of 80%, but a mandate of 50% by 2030. I mean, whether or not they pass that really is going to determine the structure of what the energy market looks like. It's going to determine what people's powers bills looks like. If you know, you can get just cheap natural gas electricity. Your power bill might be a little lower than if it's higher, but it's coming from more renewable sources. So there's like a lot of structural changes that can be made. Again, like I said earlier, there's only 15 other states that have done this. None of them have really done it since, you know, early 2000s. Not a lot of them in the Southwest have done it. So there's like there we keep asking people like, you know, give us an example. Where has this worked before? There are no examples like there's no perfect, you know, uh, like case example, case study to look at that compares to what Nevada is trying to do and what the ballot initiative will try to do. So this commission certainly has a lot of work left to do over the next year. And so really the bottom line is nobody knows. Nobody knows what, what's going to work and what's not going to work. I mean, there's, the, I mean, there, and, and it is so complex, but beyond Chris Brooks, who you mentioned, who's the sponsor of, of, of the renewable portfolio. I mean, there aren't a lot of He was in the energy business as, as a consultant. Uh, there aren't that many people there who really have, that kind of knowledge of a really complicated issue, right? Yeah, and it's hard for a part-time legislature because, you know, yeah. they're teachers, they're lawyers, they come to Carson City, you know, once every two years for 120 days. It's hard to figure all this energy stuff out, especially with term limits because you can only be here for 12 years in, in one house. So, you know, that you rely a lot on industry experts who tend to be the same people and over and over. Chris Brooks was one of those people for 15 years 
before we got elected to office. So it's a little concerning, I think, that um, to take a mild editorial stance, that they are probably doing the right thing and trying to get this stuff figured out before it passes again. If it does pass in 2018, they'll have until 2023 before it has to be deregulated. So they have some time, but there's a lot of like pre-planning stuff you have to do, right? In terms of preparing for a retail market, you have to figure out what are you going to do with all these assets that Envy Energy has built up over the years? How much do you sell them for? Uh, do we need to open or join into an open wholesale market, which is a like a way utilities can buy and sell electricity? There's nine currently in existence. Will Nevada make its own? Will we join up with California? Will we create a new Southwest one? It takes three to five years to do that. We have to like figure out more um, of our relationship with FERC that Michelle mentioned earlier in terms of if we do go to that wholesale market. So there's a lot of like really complex stuff. You have a bunch of legislators who don't meet all that often, and you only have a couple of them who like really get the nuts and bolts of energy policy. So they're giving it their best effort, but you know, it's a, it's a steep hill to climb. And we're giving people who are listening to this podcast a lot of confidence that this is going, everything's going, going to be fine. So let's just wrap this up real quickly. Uh, this discussion of energy, uh, Michelle, this, this commission, uh, I, I gather from, from what you guys wrote that they're not even sure if they're going to meet again during this session or they might, they might not, they don't have a set schedule. Is that right? They're really trying to meet May 10th. They really wanted to get two meetings under their belt before the legislative session comes. It hasn't been finalized yet, so we'll see if it indeed It's right uh, in the middle forward. of when the craziness starts, uh, uh, right? Yeah. And that's the problem. But I think part of this and, and what we gathered from this, this hearing is finally we're getting a little bit more detail about this. It's not just this big, scary um, unknown. I think the committee is being forced to kind of get more of a handle on this and trudge forward, you know, have another meeting soon um, so that, you know, this is not just an excuse not to pass other bills. Um, so I think I think it's going to bring a little more certainty, give people a little more confidence um, and might play into some of these other bills that are kind of just hanging out there. All right, let's let Megan come back uh, uh, into this. I think she's just been uh, uh, spending her time looking at red pandas on the internet while, oh, while sure. we've been talking. <laughs> what else would one do? <laughs> uh, so let's talk about a couple other issues that I think are, are, go are going to come into play. One is that something we haven't talked about that much uh, on, on the site, and I, I think we're going to soon, and that is criminal justice reform, which I think is going to be is a, is a big deal to both of the legislative leaders, Senator Ford and Speaker Fryson. I think it's a big deal to uh, the governor, who is, as some uh, people might remember, is a former federal judge cares about these issues. There are a lot of criminal justice uh, reform bills out there, are there not? There's so many bills. Michelle and I started going through all of them, and it's sort of, you know, it runs the gamut from, you know, preventing people from getting involved in the criminal justice system in the first place, you know, whether it's sort of, you know, diversion or education or just decriminalizing things at all, all the way through the process of, you know, sentencing and once you're in jail and once you get out, and there are all these proposals about restoring rights to felons, and so it really is this very broad spectrum, and I think the question now is sort of what what gets passed you know and then what will the governor sign those were a lot of the party line votes that we saw in the assembly uh this week so there's one that would um quote unquote ban the box meaning you don't have to or they're not a government employer would not be allowed to check out your criminal history until they made a job offer to you tries to um you know let people have a chance at getting a job before they're ruled out for a criminal history. Um, that got a party line vote. Uh, one of the others that got a, a weird party line vote, it kind of <laughs> stalled the whole process on Tuesday night, was uh, to allow inmates to have computers and cell phones in, in prison. 
the idea would be that they can do a video visitation with their relatives. Say they're in Lovelock or Ely. Um, their family can't drive out and do a visitation. So here's the Skype. Um, s maintain those family bonds. So when you're out of prison, you have somewhere to go. Mm -hmm. um, again, another party line. Mm -hmm. uh, we saw decriminalization of marijuana. Right. Um, which would kind of vacate convictions if someone was, you know, found to possess an ounce of marijuana or less. Mm -hmm. right. uh, to bring it in line with question two, right? So things that are now allowed because of question two, which, which legalized, passed, marijuana. legalized marijuana passed in November. Um, everything now that's legal under question two, now they're allowing, you know, you can go back and petition the court to vacate your offense and seal your records and whatnot. So it's, it's as if the conviction never happened, you know, so you're not getting penalized for that in the future. Yeah. So What's fascinating about, about this issue to me too is as you mentioned some of these party line votes is that some of these are, are like the oldest issues like the republicans want to look tough on the criminals and and they want to portray the democrats as just trying to help the victims i'm sure that's what some of these party line votes are but there are some serious serious policy issues here and one of the ones megan referred to is this restoration uh, of rights for felons especially being able to vote uh, i think both the speaker and the senate majority leader have have restoration rights i i when i talk to, to them about this they seem optimistic that the governor actually may sign something like this as a part of a criminal justice reform package. Is there, you mentioned these, there's dozens of bills uh, out there. Is there talk at all about putting some of these things together? Because it's the seminal question, right? What will the governor sign? What concepts will he like? Even though the Republicans might, in the legislature, might hate some of these things, Sandoval seems to me as much more, for lack of a better word, a judicial kind of guy. Like he wants to do things that make sense. Any sense of talk about that? I know that one of the issues right now is the prison over overcrowding. I mean, they're they're at capacity. They're talking about people s sleeping on the floors. Um, so I think one of the questions will be: Will the practical side, um, you know, the advantage of not having to send a bunch of people out to a private prison out of state and pay for that, um, the advantage, you know, being able to lower the prison population, being able to raise the um, employment rate among ex-felons, reduce recidivism by getting them into a job, getting them doing something productive. Um, will that kind of pragmatic side um, and some of those budget concerns, will that win out over kind of the sentiment of, you know, we don't need to be giving prisoners computers because they need to be punished um, or they need to do their time and they need to never be able to vote. So... Mm -hmm. Well, and I think a lot of the conversation has centered around that idea of, you know, well, do these people deserve this? You know, should they be able to get the right to vote again? And it's sort of this broad philosophical discussion about, you know, have they served their time and now we're ready to welcome them back into a member of society and, you know, not make them carry that stigma if, you know, they've you know, truly they've done their time and they've moved on and, you know, now they're now they're ready to continue their life. And so it's this question of should they continue to still pay for that crime? Or is their time done, you know, when, when they leave, when they finish their parole or probation, when they get released? It's already, like, becoming political, right? I don't know if you guys saw, but Lisa Krasner, who's a Republican Assemblywoman, the day after that vote on letting prisoners use computers and um, the Internet, she put out on Twitter saying, I voted against the iPads for prisoners bill, like, watching your back, Nevada. So, you know, it's 
going on and it's already turning political. So that's, I think, in the back of everyone's mind on this. And and Senator Roberson tried to do this early on, right, by saying this is, you know, the session where, the, you know, they don't care about the victims uh, here. They only they only want to help the criminals, right? And so yeah. they're trying to frame it, as you point out, Riley, for next year, I think. And some of the, but, but Megan's right. These are, these are like really interesting, broad philosophical issues. It's one of the few chances that they really get on this criminal justice reform. All right, let, let's, let's move, move on. Uh, real quickly, Megan, give us an update on the story I think that has fascinated you and fascinates me too, and maybe the great political battle to come at the end, or maybe close to the end, which is this uh, 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 freshman Senator uh, uh, Ivana Cancela's bill that, 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 that is referred to as the diabetes bill, but really does a lot more than that. And the pharmaceutical companies, as we have uh, reported on the site, have hired all of these lobbyists. They've had an AstroTurf uh, campaign going. going. Um, that, that bill, of course, is still alive. What's going on with that? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll give you a preview. You all should check out the site probably on Sunday. I'm going to have a big deep dive on the pharmaceutical bill and where it's at right now, so I won't be able to get into all mm-hmm. of it now. But um, yeah, the bill is still in committee right now. Um, we're waiting to see you know, when it's going to get a hearing. Um, Senator Kinsella said you know, she wants to give it the time it needs, you know, if that means getting it out sooner, and, and that's sort of what best is best for the bill, then she'll do that if it needs time, if you know, amendments need to be processed and all that, then you know, it can wait till the end of the session. And I think that's a question right now is, does this get passed sooner or does it become part of this end game and part of this, you know, political calculation with, you know, ESAs and marijuana taxes and all of this and sort of getting ensnarled and all of that. Um, but it's been a really interesting debate, um, you know, amendments to the bill, trying to clarify some of the language and shore it up and, you know, make sh- reduce some of the fiscal impact of it. Um, but it's brought up a lot of really interesting policy discussions about, you know, what should be done to address rising costs of drugs. Uh, you know, wh- whose fault is it? Is it the fault of the pharmaceutical industry? Is it is it the fault of pharmacy benefit manufacturers? Is it the fault of insurers? And the answer is it's kind of a little bit of all of them. Um, so it's, it's really a, a tricky and sort of thorny policy discussion um, because there's just so many moving parts to it. And, and as we talked about earlier, the healthcare industry is just so complicated. Uh, but I, I guess what I'm wondering is, is that uh, the, the real stakes here are that this has really never been done in any state, and I think that's why people are expecting some kind of a blitz by the by, by the pharmaceutical lobbyists, some attempt to, to change the bill substantially, because this is the nose under the tent, and it can happen right here in Nevada, and once you do it with diabetes, maybe you do it with other drugs, and the whole notion of those two words, price controls, right. drives them crazy. I mean, this, yeah. this could become, a, it's already gotten some national attention, some mm-hmm. national publications yeah. have done some things linking to the Nevada Independent, thank goodness. <laughs> uh, so, but that's really what's going on here, right? This could be a national issue, yeah. a model. Well, and I think that's what's so interesting is that we have seen other states try to implement price controls, but it's usually not specific. This is just for certain diabetes drugs. You know, it's a very narrow thing. You can say, you know, look, you know, ten, roughly 10% of people in Nevada and in the United States have diabetes. This is a real problem. You can't live without these drugs. So it puts sort of a human face on the problem, and it's a smaller target to go after, you know, than versus trying to go after the whole pharmaceutical industry for every drug and every condition. Um, So that's kind of interesting thing, but you're right that, you know, price controls haven't been implemented anywhere. So we sort of don't know. There's this whole rebate structure that's kind of complicated and how that would play out, you know, who the rebates go to, you know, when do they go to the insurers who are paying the bulk of the costs? When do they go to the patient who's paying out of pocket, maybe because they have a high deductible plan? And it's sort of uncharted territory because there isn't a model to follow. Any chance, do we think that the the governor uh, uh, would sign something like this? I think there's probably these pharma lobbyists are probably confident, oh, he would never sign 
buy anything with, with price controls, even though maybe he likes some of the transparency parts of it. Well, see, that's the interesting thing is that um, the, the, the governor's actually directed um, his chief of staff in the Department of Health and Human Services to sort of see how they can make this policy something feasible, how they can shore up the legislation and make sure that it's good policy. You know, we, we don't know where he's going to go on it yet, um, but the fact that he wants to see if this, you know, is possible is sort of an, in, an interesting indicator. More exclusive news right here from, from Megan Messerly right here on the Indie Matters podcast. Look for more on that. That's a fascinating issue. All right, Riley, it's April of 2017, and yet there are already developments, one of which uh, you broke uh, this week in some of the races uh, for uh, next year. Uh, what's going on? Yes, so on Monday on the Nevada Independent website, I had a story that Wes Duncan, a former Republican assemblyman and the current top lieutenant to Adam Laxalt, the state's attorney general, wants to run for attorney general if Laxalt runs for governor. Uh, I asked him that question specifically, and he just said yes, which isn't the most <laughs> inspiring quote of all time. But basically, he's in. Like the, It's the assumption that Adam Laxalt is going to run for governor. He's has a, an event with the Republican Governors Association um, next month. He's talking to the NRA. Uh, we're recording this on a Thursday. He's talking to them on Friday morning. You know, he has a war chest of like $1.1 million. So it's it's pretty clear he's going to run. So Duncan has been traveling the state. If you go on his Twitter account, you can see he's like hanging out at the Lincoln County Republican Party dinner. He's not there for fun. He's there because he's trying to get Have you ever been to a Lincoln County dinner? They're a lot of fun, Riley. I'm sure you're a big hit at the yes, Lincoln County yeah, Republican that's dinner. That's true. Job. That's true. So, yeah, uh, he said, you know, I'm in if Adam's in. Um, we'll see how all of that starts shaking out. Um, and, you know, it, it's a high-profile job. You know, the last attorney general was Catherine Cortez Masto, now U.S. senator. Another former attorney general was Brian Sandoval, current governor. So it can be a big jumping point for a lot of people. So most people listening to this, and what's interesting about this uh, is don't know who Wes Duncan is, right? But suddenly he gets out there and he's he's considered the leading Republican candidate for attorney general, right? Yeah. One of the things I found really interesting, like this, I'm going to call it the 2018 cycle, knowing <laughs> that we're in April of 2017, but Republicans kind of have like a sense of who they want statewide to run for each office. You know, uh, in uh, I guess like for Wes, um, the, for all the other like candidates who could have run for AG, a lot of them have declared themselves declared themselves out, right? Like Mark Amaday said today he doesn't want to run for attorney general. He doesn't know if he wants to run for re-election. There's not a lot of like other high-profile people out there who have said that. So everything's kind of sorted itself out in terms of, you know, you don't have an open Senate seat. You have Dean Heller. You have a very strong favorite for governor and Adam Laxalt. You have candidates for LG, for AG. You know, everything is just sort of the dominoes are like falling in place already in April of an off year, which I think works out for them and lets them start getting, you know, started on fundraising, campaigning, getting their name recognition up sooner rather than later. What's also interesting about this uh, is that there, I think there's a guy in the legislative building who might be thinking about running for attorney general too. And it's interesting that, they, that this would come out then. Who's that? Is it Jim Marchant? <laughs> it is not Jim Marchant. Darn. It's, uh, it's Aaron Ford, the Senate majority <laughs> leader. Whispers have abounded about whether or not he wants to run for attorney general, but you know, he's definitely taken a much more high-profile role this session, and a lot of, I think, of what he'll run on is stuff he does this session, kind of how the next four or five weeks play out. So that'll be an interesting dynamic, you know. I don't think a lot of people in general in Nevada pay attention to what happens in Carson City, so I don't think he's going to start out with much more of a name recognition advantage than Wes Duncan. And, you know, that's going to be one of the, the more competitive races, because I think nationwide there's a, a 
a greater understanding that attorney generals can have a big role on state public policy. Like Adam Waxalt has thrust Nevada when uh, for, during his first two years into like a lot of these national debates over uh, lawsuits against immigration orders, lawsuits against um, uh, public lands like sage hen stuff. So, you know, it's, it's a high-profile role. It's one of the most important statewide offices, and you got two very qualified and probably very well-funded candidates running for it. Yeah, it's going to be a very interesting race, and, and, and as you mentioned, Laxalt essentially is already in the governor's race without saying so. He's got this event uh, coming up, and you had a potential Democratic candidate for governor. I noticed he, uh, Steve Sisolak, who's a Clark County commissioner, he sat through a lot of that energy hearing, right, Michelle? Did you see him there? Yeah, he was hanging out by... Uh Danny Thompson, so. The former labor leader, Danny Thompson. He's here today. Uh, uh, maybe, yeah, and then there's a lot of gaming money in that room, too, a lot of gaming lobbyists. Uh, so, so that was going on uh, as, as well. Uh, is there any chatter in the hallways? And, and I'm really, I, I have no idea what the answer to this is. So anybody, jump. is there any chatter in the hallways about other legislators who might be using this uh, session as a springboard to run uh, for something else? I mean, I think Roberson is... <laughs> Obviously, um, you For know, lieutenant a governor lot of, probably, or maybe Congress again. Yeah, making a lot of um, strong stances, taking a, a strong position against Aaron Ford. So, and to the right of Don Gustafson, basis. as I like to say, Scott Hammond, another Republican state senator, has already basically said he's running for Congress. If Crescent Hardy, who was in Congressional District Four, decides not to run again, so he's all but out there. Um, I think one thing too, we've seen a lot of sort of you know upcoming, you know, first term people and sort of where they're going to go. You know, in the Senate, we have three Democratic women. Um, you know, they, they just, you know, joined the Senate. So they haven't been there very long. So, you know, they might want to spend some time there. But, you know, there are these questions of, you know, who might go somewhere in the future? You know, what aspirations do they have? Well, I think they're probably focused on, you know, the job at hand right now. Yeah, I think for Democrats, especially when they just got wiped out in 2014, they really don't have a bench. So there's a lot of like first timers or people in their second term who think, right. you know, why not me? Why not? Why shouldn't I? You think like it could be U.S. Senate, it could be like a congressional bid. If Jackie Rosen, who no one knew three years ago, can get in Congress, like why can't a first-term legislator run for some higher office? And Jackie Rosen's already, there's talk that maybe she will run for the U.S. Senate. Uh, and that shows you how weak the Democratic bench is. No insult to Jackie Rosen, but someone who's been in politics for a cup of coffee. I should just mention, Megan, the three women you were talking about, uh, the three uh, freshman Democrats, uh, Ivana Cancela, uh, Julia Ratti, and Nicole Cannizzaro, are all getting good reviews from, from both sides of the aisle as being hardworking and, and from the lobbying corps. All right, uh, we're getting close to the end here, so let's, let's, try, let's do something new. You guys, uh, these guys don't know this is coming. Uh, uh, and, and so let, let's, let's each of you guys give a little hint about something that you might be working on that, uh, that, that pe folks should look for uh, on the site. I'll start with you, Michelle. So I'm working on a story for this weekend about autism and how Nevada has uh, funded it or or not funded it. Um, there's a long wait list and autism, as you might know, is um, growing in prevalence. You know, one in 60 some kids affects a lot of it. people. Yeah. Um, it's something that requires a ton of early intervention, intensive 35 or 40 hours a week of treatment. This is super expensive, a big burden. Um, people need help from the state and the government to try to pay for this. Um, so exploring some of the um, budget issues there and um, talking to families that have uh, been dealing with, with children with autism. 
That sounds like a great story. Megan, what do you got coming? Give them a hint. I mean, I kind of already tipped my hand a little mm. bit, but um, you should read this pharmaceutical story I'm working on. Um, it's just like a very complicated issue, and there's a lot of background and a lot of nuance, and it has to do with, you know, the way that insurance plans are changing and the way that prescription drug prices are are changing and rising, and, and there's just a lot of different details. And um, it's a complicated debate, and, you know, everyone's sort of making these arguments, and there's a lot of emotional arguments, too, because this affects a lot of real lives. Um, and so it's just, I think, important for people to know the, the context and sort of, you know, understand who's right on which issue, you know, and the answer is that everyone's kind of a little right in a lot of different areas, but um, it's a complex problem. Uh, and I hope people read that story, too, just as long with uh, uh, Michelle's, because it's the kind of thing we like to do at the Nevada Independent is tackle these public policy issues and really, uh, since there's vast space on the internet, give you guys a lot of space uh, to write. Riley, what do you got coming? Well, John, that big investigation into Vegas PBS you asked me to look into <laughs> is finally coming. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so Megan and I are working on another follow the money story that has to do with how much money developers, real estate people, and the construction industry gave. It's totaling close to a million dollars. I think some people will just be surprised on how much money the realtors and all these different construction companies have to throw around. That's great stuff, and I hope people will go on and take a look at all the uh, follow-the-money stories because you really can see public policy outcomes uh, affected uh, by the money. And plus, there are what, Megan? There are great charts with each of those stories. Oh, are there not? charts. There are Google Fusion tables. If you have not had the pleasure of enjoying mm -hmm. them, you get to drag the little bubbles around and see how everyone's connected. So yeah. highly recommend you go on our site. It's really one of the great the visual things that, w that we do. Uh, and this has been the, the Indie Matters uh, podcast. Uh, it's all the time we have... Uh, this week. Please go on the site too uh, at thenevadaindependent.com. We want to know what you think as well. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, except for Riley after that last comment, email us at ideas at thenvindy.com. And please check out our site at all the time. It's constantly updating with the deep dives and breaking news. I want to thank Riley, Michelle, and Megan uh, for being here. And as always, many thanks to Joey Lovato, who's our fantastic UNR intern, who makes us all sound podcasts move. I'm John Ralston. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters, and we'll talk to you next week.